Up next, Biz 503, the Portland-centric podcast for startups and small businesses. We believe it, we live it, and there's something about Brand Portland that has taken a meteoric rise in our world. Welcome to Biz 503, the Portland-centric podcast for startups and small businesses. I'm Linda Weston, principal at the consulting firm Reporto. And I'm Mike Rogaway, business reporter at The Oregonian. Today, we're discussing the survivors, not the reality show, but retail survivors, local businesses that keep their heads above water, even as so many of us paddle over to Amazon to order every imaginable product delivered to our door. There are record stores, bookstores, gift shops, and many other businesses that were supposed to have died in the internet age, and certainly many have. But what about the others, the survivors? What keeps customers coming through their doors? Joining us today are a celebrated retail survivor and two retail experts. We'll talk with a consultant and a retail reporter in just a moment. But first, please welcome Terry Courier, owner of Music Millennium Record Store, one of the most iconic retail survivors in the Northwest. Terry, welcome to Biz 503. Good to be here. Thanks very much for joining us. So to say that Music Millennium is an institution doesn't, in Portland doesn't begin to tell the story. You've seen, you spanned eras of music in the city. Tell us a little bit about your story, the history of Music Millennium, and how you weathered the changes. Well, Music Millennium started in 1969. It was originally started by Don McLeod, who worked for Tektronics, and they had a program that if you had a good sound business idea that let you take your money out of retirement and start a business. And he started Music Millennium and it became very successful. In the 70s, if you knew music, you could be a successful retail record store owner because the industry was growing leaps and bounds through that era. And when it got up to about 1980, things fell off again. And for the next three or four years, stores started falling to the wayside. And then there was the CD that got introduced to the public, and all of a sudden, the industry went straight forward again and um, grew and grew and grew to a certain point when Napster came around. And Napster came around around 2000. At that time, there were 7,500 record stores in America. Uh, by 2007, there was 1,800. The media had pretty much painted a picture that record retail stores were going to be obsolete and gone at any moment. At that particular time, Record Store Day was born. And that thing came out of something that happened years ago. And in 1992, six of the major distribution companies came up with policies that if you sold UCDs in your store, they weren't going to support you with advertising and marketing money. And I thought that was unfair because we should be able to do whatever we want to do with our own business. So I wrote a three-page letter to the industry and sent it out to presidents, vice presidents, and distribution and labels and started waging a war against the industry. And I sent the letter to all the trade publications in the industry, too, so they started covering this thing. And out of that, about five months later, Garth Brooks came out and stated that he didn't want his new album sold in stores that were selling used product. 
he felt that songwriters should get paid a second time if the record was resold. And so I invited the public to come down to our parking lot the next week, bring all their Garth Brooks posters, VHS <laughs> tapes, albums, and we'd barbecue them on the grill. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we sent personal releases to all the media in town. And within the week, each one of those medias had either come to the store, called the store, or showed up at the barbecue that next week. And I had a chef hat on, chef apron. I was putting barbecue VHS tapes on hoagie buns with barbecue sauce <laughs> and taking a bite out of them. And it got really good reaction. And at that time, I go, well, I'm not going to win this war going back and forth within the industry. I need to take this to the public. And... Um, so I took it on tour from Bellingham, Washington, down to San Diego, and we did nine stops along the tour. We got a van. We called the thing the Barbecue for Retail Freedom Tour. We stopped at nine different record stores. We had tour T-shirts with all the tour dates on the back. <laughs> when we were in Berkeley, you know, the 5 o'clock news in the Bay Area was there. And then we went to the San Francisco Giants game that night with our aprons and hats on, and everybody had seen this. When we got done with the tour, within two weeks, uh, all those record labels had rescinded their policies, and things went back to normal. Out of that, I came up with this idea that, because I'd met all these independent record stores along the way, and we all had common issues and problems and concerns, and I go, wouldn't it be great to start a retail support group where we could all share ideas with stores in non-competitive marketplaces. So we picked a store in, well, we ended up with 70 some stores in the beginning and they were all in non-competitive marketplaces. And when you say non-competitive marketplaces, you mean? There was like one in Portland, one in San Francisco, mm -hmm. one in Los Angeles, one in Austin. And uh, because the, you know, People in the same business don't tend to share their business stuff with fellow retailers in their own town. Right. It's a competitive market. Yes. So, Terry, I'm curious. It hasn't all been easy. You've been a survivor. Um, but about a decade ago, you had to close the Northwest 23rd store, which was the first music millennium I went into personally. You had to lay off a bunch of folks um, has the Burnside store been plugging right along? Uh, what are your challenges now? Uh, is it still touch and go, or are you feeling pretty good about the future? Well, when we shut that store down in 2007, that was a, a low time in the industry. And we had seen a seven-year slide of business going down. Our landlord wanted us to sign a long-term lease, and uh, our rent was going to go up every year. But with looking at the historical data there that we were on the downside trend, I couldn't in good faith sign a, sign a lease to go forward and um, put the company in jeopardy. I did look for other spaces over in that area of town, but that particular area of town, the rent was pretty high. It was a more in-demand area, so we shut it down. Now, the Burnside store was running into problems too. And in fact, five and a half years ago, we ran into some bookkeeper problems. And 
one of my bookkeepers probably getting out of jail right now after, <laughs> after a five-year sentence. So we had a lot of things that have uh, upset the apple cart. I have been told over the years that record stores were going to go away by so many people. I love what I do, and I was determined to make the store go into the future. And we've had to make a lot of changes in order to do that. We've had to cut staff. We've had to change the mix of product in our store. We had a classical store, which opened in 1977, called Classical Millennium, which was connected to the building. And five years ago, we had to make a change, and that part of the store became our vinyl department. Uh, we still carry classical music, but it's just a piece of the pie. You know, there, it strikes me there's a lot of things about your business that are unique that in some ways, being a record store, you can appeal to people's emotions. And also, you know, retail campaign showed, you know, rebellion too. There's a resistance that goes along with music. Do you think that your experience is unique or do you think the things you've been through other retailers could learn from? Oh, definitely other retailers have been through it too. Because I'm in this coalition, I'm talking to other retailers on other marketplaces all the time, and they're definitely going through that. The one thing that has helped us into the future was in 2007, there was three coalitions. Out of the original coalition, two other coalitions happened, and the three coalitions started Record Store Day. And they did it to try to get some unique product on vinyl made for a particular day to try to get people into our stores. But at the same time, we use it as an awareness campaign that, hey, there are record stores out here, and yes, they are making vinyl. And if you look over the last 10 years since Record Store Day started, vinyl went from being under a half a percent of the physical sales in the marketplace across the country to almost 14% at this particular point. All right. Thanks, Terry. We're going to take a short break and talk more about what local businesses can do to compete effectively with online retail giants when we come back after this short break. Support for Biz 503 comes from acreative.agency, specializing in marketing, automation, and web development. For more, go to acreative.agency. Welcome back to Biz 503. I'm Linda Weston of Reporto, here with Mike Rugaway from The Oregonian. Today, we're talking about the survival of small local retail businesses. With us now, my colleague Anna Merrim, retail and commercial real estate reporter for The Oregonian, and Alyssa Pishka, principal at Leland Consulting Group. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Anna, you talk to a, a lot of retailers. You heard Terry talk about Music Millennium's success story. Are there other stories in town that you think are good, you know, small retail success stories, or are there common strategies you see people doing? Yeah, I think I've seen a couple of common strategies. I think with Terry, it's been finding that niche. Um, and a lot of retailers in town have capitalized on that. Um, but also, I've I've seen retailers um, succeed by being more than a place to shop, by, um, you know, creating events. And so we saw Betsy and Aya, they make jewelry. And so they started this Little Boxes event. Um, and it was sort of like a local answer to Black Friday shopping. 
And then uh, Crafty Wonderland, uh, I think it's on on 10th downtown. They hold um, art and craft markets twice yearly at the convention center. And so, you know, these become kind of marketing uh, opportunities for them. And um, then people kind of know their name through what they do. And it's it's much more than just a place to shop. Well, what about the flip side? What are some of the greatest retail losses Portland has seen recently? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is definitely Macy's downtown and the Meyer and Frank building. Um, it closed last spring and it it occupied five floors of that building with the um, the hotel above it, uh, which is still is still operating. But, you know, it, it was kind of more than just a place to shop. It was a, a place where the the window displays every holiday. You'd have Santa. Um, I think there was like a, a monorail thing mm-hmm. in there at some point. Um, and so people, I think, really were struck by that. And really, you know, the, there was kind of an outpouring of, of people saying like, oh, you know, this is a big loss for the, the central city. Um, but now uh, OSU has said there it's going to move into the second floor. And I know the the brokers are trying to get creative office in the upper floors and then bring maybe a few different retail tenants there in the ground floor. Alyssa, you work with cities, I believe. Mm-hmm. Why do cities put a priority on preserving retail and what sort of things are they doing that that work? So cities really, when they're involved uh, with retail, it typically revolves around the downtown core where it's more independent uh, shops in really distinct buildings as opposed to more of a strip mall or a mall that's managed by a big property manager. For them, um, I think Beaverton is a really good example of one of our clients. What's interesting is tying it to a larger economic development picture. They're the businesses out there, Nike, Tektronics, significant um, CEOs were saying to the city, I have nowhere to take my clients for dinner and I can't get talent to come out here. I need food carts and I need restaurants. So cities know they need to make a place. They need to make experience. And those are the retailers that are thriving. So restaurants, coffee shops, brew pubs. And then you can also think about the grocery is surviving. So you can touch it, feel it, go in and grab something right away. So the cities really know they need to make sure that there is a place. And this um, retail component is really critical to forming that place. So a couple of the other resources or um, programs that provide assistance to small retailers locally are the Portland Night Market and um, Mercatus, the program run by Prosper Portland, who just had a a wonderful um, version of Night Market targeted for um, businesses owned and operated by people of color. Are there other resources available out there for small retailers, small businesses? Yeah, so a lot of cities, so building off, um, you know, more of the incubator, the food hall, food cart, also you can move into eventually potentially a bricks and mortar uh, restaurant location. A lot of cities recognize that they can pay for an ADA bathroom or the HVAC system, which can equate to about $100,000 to get that space ready for a restaurant tour or storefront programs. How do we improve the front of the storefront, or even some cities will pay for a retail advisor. How do you make the storefront attractive? How do you rearrange the interior? So there's a lot of different programs. What I'm hearing from you too is the sort of businesses that are thriving are those that are providing a distinctive experience. Is it across, you know, spectrums, high end, low end, uh, or are, you know, certain types of businesses, you know, maybe more boutique maybe more premium? Are they more likely to survive or can a lower end, somebody targeting a, a larger market or a mass market, can they 
can they make it work these days? Or is that all going Amazon's way? Well, I think Macy's a really good example. That middle tier is going away quickly. And I think it's correlating with the income gap that we're seeing. So the discount retailers, the bigger dollar trees, those continue to go in or the higher in boutiques. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's right on. Uh, what would you say in, in terms of what's making it work? Do you want to identify with a neighborhood? Do you want to identify with a city? Do you want to identify with a market? What's What's important? Yeah, I think in Portland, especially, we're so neighborhood centric uh, in the inner city. But there are some brands that have been really good at kind of finding their niche and identifying their customer. And I think that Wild Fang, which is um, a clothing company that was founded by two, um, you know, Nike employees, and their whole thing is tomboy clothing. So kind of more um, masculine clothing for women. And they have really capitalized on on their brand. And they um, now do just huge a huge amount of international sales. But they have kept this, um, you know, kind of social justice type thing. And they're very progressive and they're very outspoken politically. Um, and so they've capitalized on that. I would just add to that. I think what also really helps is if you can create a kind of a nucleus or a destination of multiple retailers. So people are going to a place, um, not necessarily a specific destination. So I want to follow up on the little boxes thing and find out more about how that works and how that's impacted the small retailers. And then I'd like to ask another question about Wild Thing. Okay. So what what do you guys think about little boxes and how that works? Well, yeah. So it was um, uh, Betsy Cross and Will, I'm going to murder his name. Um, it's Severich, I think. Um, they just sold little boxes to Built Oregon, a nonprofit that kind of supports local businesses. I think Built Oregon really wants to grow the program. And so what it is, it's a three-day shopping event where um, you you get raffle tickets for each store you go into. And so you have this app that you can download and you can get more tickets the more stores you go into. And so it's supposed to really push local shopping. And then the tickets are used for um, you can win a, a vacation or, or a stay in a hotel. Um, and so th- I think they really want to expand that. And so it's not just on Black Friday weekend and it's not just in Portland. Maybe it's, you know, in July. And so you kind of have this maybe a, um, a local answer to Amazon's Prime Day or something like that. And so I think that's where they want to take this. So there's sort of support for local businesses year round and not just in Portland. Okay. Thank you, Anna. I want to follow on about Wild Fang as well and what they've done to create that sense of community that draws people both into their brick and mortar places and online. One of the things they do every month is called free speech, where on the last Wednesday night of the month, they bring in a group of five or six speakers who get six minutes each to tell their story about a specific topic. They'll they'll put out the name of a topic and then the speakers can go anywhere they want with it. And they get, feels like hundreds of people into the store at that point. And then proceeds from the evening get donated to Planned Parenthood or the ACLU. Are other small retailers trying to do similar things and create that sense of community? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think so. I think Wild Thing is probably the largest and most um, well-known uh, retailer in Portland doing that. But there's a little shop on Sandy um, called Project Object, and um, they're very kind of like women supporting women, and it's a women woman owned business. And I think they have. Um, they do rotating art events with sort of maybe that a little bit of that political bent to it. 
Thanks, Anna. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about what local retailers can do and what they are doing to survive in the internet era right after this. Thanks to acreative.agency, specializing in marketing, automation, and web development. For more, go to acreative.agency. Welcome back to Biz503. We're here with Anna Maram, Alyssa Pishka, and Terry Courier. Thanks again to all of you for being here. Thanks. Oh, thanks so how can small businesses differentiate themselves from the massive stuff on the internet, the, the experience of being in the store itself? Terry, let, let's start with you. Uh, we do a lot of things at our store to create the experience. That's one thing I talk to my staff about. 1989, we put a, a stage in our store. And since that point, we have done four to 5,000 live in-store performances. Uh, with local artists and with national and international artists. We have a customer appreciation barbecue every year in our back parking lot, which is a whole day event with free food and uh, seven bands playing. Uh, on that particular day, we also are the kickoff stop for a record crawl that started a couple years ago. And People will meet down at our store and they'll go to a half a dozen different record stores within the city in the day and, and get that shopping experience. Anything we can do to make the customer want to come back to the store by making it as exciting is to our benefit. And Terry, you've added a, a liquor license too. How's that work? How does it go? We haven't started serving yet. We have our kegerator in. We have done our plumbing. We have done everything. We're sitting here right now because we're only serving wine and beer in plastic cups. We were told by somebody that you didn't need a dishwasher, but you have to have a restaurant license. And even though you're not washing dishes, you are required to have a dishwasher. So that's our next point of thing to do when, when it's up and running how, how will it how will it work people can just come in uh, browse the stacks and um have a drink while they're yes that's the way it'll work um it there's no seating in there at all it's just meant for people to have a better time if they want while they're shopping in the store what about for live events you know if you have somebody playing can you serve beer during that yeah we will serve beer during live events. We're going to be very cautious because we are an all-age situation and we will put wristbands on people so we can differentiate the, <laughs> the age difference there, excuse me on that word, and, and keep control on it. I mean, we're foremost a record store. We're not trying to be a bar. We're just trying to enhance the experience. So, Anna, what about the sort of experiential factor in other stores? Is it as much of a big deal? What are you seeing out there? Can you give us some examples of what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, a huge deal. I think uh, the the bottom line is that a lot of stores, a lot of independent stores and, and larger retailers are saying, okay, we almost at first don't care if you're not buying anything right away, at least we want to make this a place where you feel comfortable hanging out. And if that means more seating or we have, you know, we're offering beer and wine to you, then great. If you feel comfortable and like you can hang out, uh, then maybe you'll come back and you'll spend more money. So Wild Fang has um, in its downtown store, they have like a little bar where they sell wine and beer 
And uh, then there's a, a new store, Kasube, and uh, it stands for coffee, surf, and beer. And so it's sort of this surfboard lifestyle store, but it, they also have, um, it's also a coffee shop and it's also sort of a, a low-key, very chill bar. And they, I think they just serve beer um, and wine. But they just, you know, you go in there and it, it opens at 6 a.m. to get the early morning surf crowd. And but there are people in there having coffee and reading. And so these people, you know, the repeat customers may might not buy clothing or, or a surfboard every time they come in. But, you know, they might buy a candle, you know, every month or something like that. So are you seeing the same kinds of things happening in small retailers outside of the downtown core? Um, you know, I think, yeah, and um, definitely in some of the neighborhoods, um, you're seeing more events, you're seeing um, workshops. So there's, um, there's a, I think it's called field trip on division. And so it's, you know, they have workshops like every week, maybe. And so people can come in and meet other people and learn how to macrame or uh, things like that. And then you have um, rotating art shows just like Project Object has. And so many retailers have that. Um, I think there's the Land Gallery on uh, Mississippi. It's whole upstairs is, a, is an art gallery. And they have uh, they bring in a new artist every month and I, or maybe every quarter. But when they do bring in a new artist, they have this event, right? And so people come in and maybe have some wine or beer and look at the art, maybe buy some of the art, but then maybe buy some of the, you know, products in the shop below as well. So I think it's just a really good way for retailers to connect with the community and to make it more than just a place to shop. Let's look at it from the customer perspective for a moment. It's the holiday season now. People are buying gifts. What sort of person is going into Music Millennium or Pals or one of the shops Anna mentioned rather than just firing up their computer and going to Amazon? I think it's really going to be why do I want advice? Do I want an experience? Do I want to touch and feel it? And I think that's what Terry and we had been talking about. You said you have families coming in now. And I think it's more about how do we get advice or talk to someone, a live person to really help me with these selections? Because you're not going to get that on Amazon. You might get a few um, options below based on algorithm. But how do you find out about a musician? How do you learn more about a certain book? I go to pals to say, what would you really recommend for kids? And I think that even translates another go-to example a lot of people are citing is uh, the retail store Bonobos, uh, which is a men's retailer. So you have to go in, they measure you, they they get to know you, they get to know what your sizes are, what exactly fits you, but then everything is ordered online. So they know straight online isn't going to work. It's that tangible experience. And then you build a relationship with whoever's helping you there. So I think it's really making a connection beyond just that um, item on the screen. So maybe the brick and mortar world is winnowing the things that aren't commodities. You're not just exactly. going to pick up something that's standard. You're trying to get something that's different from everywhere else, or at least something that you need to learn a little bit more about. Before. Exactly. Exactly. You want to touch it. You want to feel it. You want to have a relationship with someone at the store with a little bit of expertise. Terry, at one time, the record store clerk was the very best way to, to uh, maybe a disc jockey, but even they were limited in what they could play just by time. The record store clerk was the person who knew, you know, hey, this is a new band you may not have heard. This is, fits your style. Now Pandora, Spotify, they'll spit something out at you that's that's like that. What do people want to learn at a record store these days? Well, people are very busy in their life right now, and, and there's only a certain amount of people that can pay attention to all the music that's coming out. So 
R-Star is a great resource for them to come in and find out what is new, what is happening. And it's also a great opportunity for people who want to get into new genres of music. That I want to listen to jazz. The people that work for us are usually very excited about music. And they're not all musicologists, but they love music. And to talk to them, you can learn so much. You can find out about things that you just can't find out. If you're surfing around on the internet, you're going to usually look for a specific item. But in a record store or a bookstore where you're talking to a human being, that conversation could go all kind of different directions. So, um, Terry, you recently ran a Kickstarter campaign to put a new roof on the store. And that really speaks to the sense of community that people feel and that that sort of sense of ownership about Music Millennium. I'd be curious to hear from Anna and Alyssa if you know of other organizations out there that have done something similar. Oh, you know, um, I'm not thinking of any right off, but I know that it is a you know, a growing movement. And you see more business owners kind of if they're established and their name is out there and they have like a good idea. I think I want to say Colin Melloy developed a game. So he's the Decemberists front man and he lives in Portland. And I believe that they developed like a board game or something and did a Kickstarter for that or some, a similar platform for that. And it was a huge success because people knew who he was. Thank you. One more reason Terry and Music Millennium are iconic, I think. So that's Terry Courier, owner of Music Millennium, Anna Marum, retail and commercial real estate reporter at The Oregonian, and Alyssa Pishka, principal at Leland Consulting Group. And thank you for joining us on Biz 503. Have a great weekend. 